This summer, we've been going through uh, the book of James in the New Testament. Little book, five small chapters. James, the more you, you study the guy's life, the more impressed, the more awed you are with him. He was Jesus' half-brother. He was discipled by the same folk who discipled Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. Very first pastor, the very first church in all of Christendom. Um, but his church kind of scattered due to persecution. And so he writes them this letter. And this is where he's going with this. His, his, because his, his church is not uh, uneducated people. They're not pagans who just came to know Christ. These are folk who were, uh, they've been Jewish. Their parents were Jewish. And their parents, their parents, and their parents, they knew the Old Testament. They were, were trained on the law. They, they understood it very, very, very well. Uh, if you grew up in the church, you know that there can be a uh, occupational hazard, kind of, with that. And that is that, that you think your tradition, you think the way you, you do it is really all there is to it. That spiritual maturity, right, is nothing more than the accumulation of more, more information, more Bible information. And so James is writing these guys, and he says... This is what we're really trying to accomplish here. A faith that doesn't just profess, but a faith, faith that possesses. You know, do you profess your faith or do you possess your faith? This is what he's trying to go with. That there is a level of spiritual maturity and it probably is not what you're thinking. And so he's going through his book. And, and when we get to the section that we're hitting today, he kind of turns the corner a little bit. So let me read this to you. Then we'll get into it. If you got your Bibles, it's James chapter. 3, beginning in verse, verse 13, short section, but powerful, powerful section. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? Now again, they all thought they were, but he says, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have better, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to, to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness will be shown in peace by those who make peace. Now, you might listen to the text and go, no, that's not that great of a text. I've heard better. You know, Keeping this text in its context, you remember James starts off in his church. Remember, they're, they're scattered because of persecution. So the first thing he talks about was trials, persecution. And he says, I realize that when we're under trials, the, there are, our innate desire is to get out from under them. And so we panic and we do everything we can. He says, but not so fast. Keep in mind that, that God will use these trials to help mature you. So how you do trials is pretty important. He then talks about the relationship, probably the most important relationship a Christian can have, and that is the relationship between a Christian and the Bible. And he's talking, remember, he's talking to these, these 
Jewish folk, remember? They're, they're believers now, but they were trained in the law. And, he, and he, he says that, I know you think that the most important thing is knowing and hearing, is, but it's not. It's doing. And so I want to challenge you. Don't be hearers of the word, but doers only. Do your faith. Then he talks about this idea of how you treat the haves and the have-nots in life, in your own mind, in your own heart. Maybe not in actions, but do you kind of determine who's more valuable, more, who's more important, who's more significant based on the externals stuff. Then he talks about a person's faith and works. Remember? Remember we, we mentioned this, that uh, James is looking from the outside, and he says if there's no smoke coming out of the chimney, there's probably no fire in the fireplace. He says, he says if you've got faith, you're going to have works. We might say, what would Jesus do? Next section, he talks about if you've got faith, you're gonna, it's going to affect your speech. How you talk to one another, not just how you talk to your brother or sister, but how you talk to anybody, it will affect your speech. So what would Jesus say? And then he, he, he takes another level today. He says, we, we need to have a faith that works. We need to have a faith that works. But then he throws this caveat. He says, however, 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 if you work, but you don't work out of the proper heart, out of the proper character, it's disaster. It will sink a church. We could tell stories this morning. I could tell stories this morning of people working, 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 but not coming from the right character, coming from the right heart. And it was disaster. It did not advance. And so that's what James says. You need to work, but you need to make sure that your actions are coming in the right direction. Look at verse 13. Let's unpack this a little bit. He says, who is wise understanding among you by his good conduct? Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. You see that word by his good conduct? In the, in the Greek, there are two different words for good. There's agathos, okay? And then there's kalos. And this is the difference. If you were to hear somebody play a piano concerto, and they were technically perfect, you would look at them and listen to them and say, oh, that was agathos, that was good, that was technically perfect, that was exactly the way it was supposed to be, that was by the book, that was good. But if you listen to someone play that same piano concerto, and their heart was involved with it, and they got into the, the piece, became one with them, and as they played, you were awed. And you sat back, you would say, that was good. Not that it was technically good, though it probably was. That's, that was, that was colossal good. That's like if you got an ice cream cone, you know, from Sarah's and, that's good. Or you're watching the, the sunset at, at, at the aisle and you watch it go down and you go, that was good. You see, you see a sharp looking guy or sharp looking gal and you say, boy, they look good. The word good there, coloss, means aesthetically pleasing. It, it, it means, uh, beautiful. And so guess what word James uses here? The second word, kalos. Now all these folk, remember these Jewish folk, they knew the law and they were going to live their life by the book and they were going to be accurate and correct and 100% correct. And he says, anybody here smart? You think you got it figured out? You think you got the discernment? Prove it by a beautiful life. Not by a technically correct life. He wants it to be that, of course. But no, no, no. By a beautiful life. Now we know, right? We know lots of Christians who are tech, they've got the technical stuff all figured out, but do they have a beautiful life? Yeah, some of them, no, no, no. And James says, you think you're wise? You think you got it figured out? Prove it by a beautiful 
life. He says, and this is how you're going to do it. You're going to show your, your good works, right? In the meekness of wisdom. The w- w- wisdom. Uh, as we go through James, you've got to keep in mind this. You've got to keep in mind that, again, James was discipled by Mary and Joseph. James grew up a good Jewish boy. James knew his Old Testament, and he's got inferences to that all over the place here. I think here he's thinking about Proverbs. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go somewhere. You're going to think, oh, he's going off on a tangent. I'm not going off a tangent. Just, just, just stick with me. We'll, we'll connect the dots in a second. Proverbs 6 says that the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, think about that for just a minute. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What does it mean to fear the Lord? You know, when I was in junior high school, no, I was in high school. This is actually, Nick was in my junior high school too. But I was afraid of Nick. You know, I'll tell you what. When you walked by the bathrooms, by the shop class area, you did not. It was a scary thing because there would stand Nick and his whole gang. And these are guys who, who knows what they were doing. Reputation was all kind of, but, but you knew they didn't think twice about grabbing some unsuspecting soul, dragging him in the bathroom, giving them a swishy, taking off their clothes, throwing them back out in the hall after they beat them up a little bit. This is the kind of things that transpired in my high school, but that was a decent high school, but this was what was going on. So when you walked by, you were afraid. You put your head down. You just tried to get by. And if you could have got outside and got around, that would have been the better way. But, but you were afraid. Now, is this what it's talking about? The fear of the Lord. Better be afraid because he's God. You know what I mean? You're, you're not God. He's God. He can squish you if he wants to. And, oh, God. That's not what it means. Part of our issue is we take a Hebrew concept with old English language and we interpret the whole thing out of a 21st century American perspective. Um, but Psalm 130 helps us with this. Psalm 130 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities... Oh, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. You would think it would say, but with you, Lord, there's a big stick that pops the body in the head that you may be feared. But it's, it's, nothing, it's not being scared. It's here. You recognize what I should get. And he forgives me. It's like, it's awe. It, it, it's, it's reverence. It's recognizing that, man, I owe you. You could clobber me. Wow, your grace. It's, it's awe. And what he's talking about with this, 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 this wisdom is this biblical wisdom, fear of the Lord. It's kind of like a spiritual awakening. Let me give you an illustration. Let's just say there is a, a chemical engineer, and this chemical engineer is a botanist, and he's also an apiologist. Do you know what an apiologist is? I'm not all that, but I just figured this out this, this week. Interesting word. He's a studier of bees, okay? Studier of bees. So chemical engineer, botanist, and apiologist. And so he studies honey, and he knows all the molecular structure of honey. And he's, he's written incredible articles for scientific journals on the molecular structure and the benefit of honey. Problem is, this chemical engineer has never tasted honey, right? So he's an expert on it, he knows, but he's never tasted it. Then you've got this little kid. He's got a spoon with some money on it. Because uh, look at it. Now this kid understands honey in a way this engineer does not. This kid has experienced the honey. It's kind of on him. It's probably it's in him. And, and he is one with the honey. You know what I mean? He, he, is, he, is, he, he understands and knows this honey intimately, I guess you could say. 
The engineer guy just knows about honey. Now he knows a lot more than the kid about it. But the kid really knows it. I think in the church, we can take the engineer approach to God. Where, man, you know what? We study. I'm, t- and I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm all for, for the study. We, we study and we study and we study and we write our papers and we understand and we know and we parse the verbs and we, co- and we got it figured out. And we know the tribes and we got it all. We know. We know. But we've never experienced. We've never tasted God. And there's a danger in the church of folk who study, 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 they, they, they go, they, but they've never experienced. You know, the psalmist said, taste and see that the Lord is colossal, that the Lord is good, that he's good. And a lot of folk don't taste. And so he says, he says that, that the beginning, you get this beautiful, you want a beautiful life. It starts with understanding God, a spiritual awakening. You start walking with him, you taste him. And then James is going to say, and what's going to naturally come out of that relationship, but naturally come out of that, that understanding of, of God, that wisdom is meekness, right? He says, have your beautiful life shown in the meekness of wisdom. Now we think meekness, meekness. That sounds like a wimpy word, doesn't it? Meekness. Sounds like uh, someone's going to be a, a welcome mat to whoever, right? They've got no opinion of their own, just whatever. Anybody, well, I'm just here to serve you. And so they're getting beat up their whole life. And that's okay. That's what they're about, meekness. But word doesn't mean that at all. When I was in uh, southwest Colorado years ago, I saw something I had never, I had never, se- I'd never seen this before. I was amazed. Uh, in the wild, we were on Anasazi National Park, I think, a gazillion acres. And... We saw three wild horses. I mean, these were, were real horses, really wild horses. I mean, these, these horses had never had a saddle on them. They'd never been groomed. They'd never lived in a barn. Their parents were wild horses. Their parents were wild horses. Their parents were wild. All they knew was wild, was freedom. They did not know. Now, let's just say you're able to, to get one of those horses somehow. You're able to get one of those, and you put them in a corral, what do you imagine he's thinking? He's probably feeling like he's in prison or in a cage, because in a sense, that's exactly where he's at. And he's probably not real happy about being in this corral. And he's probably kicking and doing whatever he can to get out of this corral. Now, you, he sees you walking towards him. You get in the corral with him, and you're walking towards him with a saddle. What do you think he's thinking? And do you think he's going to be nice and kind towards you to let you put that saddle on his back? I don't think so. Now, this is a wild, dangerous animal. A ton of speed, ton of power, but you don't have any access to it. Matter of fact, it's going to be turned against you in just a second, right? But now let's just say that somehow you get the saddle strapped on this, this, this joker. He's, whatever it happens. And then you get on it. How do you think he's going to feel about that? <laughs> he probably is not going to love this. It's not going to be a great experience for him. He's going to feel obviously very threatened, and he's going to jump and buck and kick and roll, and he's going to knock you off that set. He's going to do everything he can to knock you off, and when he does, he's going to make sure you don't get back on again. It's going to be all over. Now, I had a... Uh, friend back when I lived in Wisconsin, he's a pastor, believe it or not, what he did was he was a hobby horse breaker. His, for a hobby, he would, he cowboy sort of guy, he would get these horses that had never been ridden before, and he would teach them that they should be ridden. Now, I don't know if he did with, dealt with wild horses, per se, but it's quite, quite a process, but can you imagine you finally get this 
guy in the corral, you get him broken. By the way, it's an interesting word, isn't it? He's broken. He's broken. Uh, you're able to put the saddle on him. You're able to get on him. You've got this 1,000, 1,200-pound horse that can now take you wherever you want to go a whole lot faster than you could get there, and you're not sweating by the time you get there. You can use this guy's energy and power to, to haul things and to accomplish all kinds of stuff. You've got this power and control. You can get all kinds of stuff done. That's kind of what this word meekness, that's the picture behind the word meekness, is power, but in control. Power and control. That's why Jesus could say, you know, he'd say, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. That, that's, 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 that's meek. It's gentle. It's same word. He's, he's meek. Uh, think about this for just a minute. Think about what you know. Think about people who... Uh, uh, are meek. That means they're for you. Their power in control. Their power is not going to hurt you. It's it's for you. Jesus could say he's God, a little bit more powerful than a horse. His power. He's he's meek. He's he's for us. There's something attractive about Jesus. People wanted to be with Jesus, not just church people. Unchurched people wanted to be with Jesus. He was not soft on sin. He was strong on sin. But they they were attracted to Jesus. Think about people you know. Forget their profession for a minute, whether their profession to be professing to be hyper Christian or, or not. But if they're frothing, if they're dangerous, I mean, nobody wants to be next next to a wild horse. It's it's dangerous. It could hurt you. It's someone who just wants to maybe use you or whatever. Just, you just don't want to. You want to be by somebody who's meek, don't you? Somebody who who is interested in you, not to use you. Someone who cares for you. Uh, not for them get out of you, but what you can get from them. That's, that's, that's why Jesus could say this. Uh, meekness. Meekness. Um, when we're meek. Why we're meek. Maybe that's the way to say it. We've got this wisdom, right? We've understood who God is. We've come awake to God. And when we do that, we realize that we are not here because we work so hard to get here, right? We did not, we don't have what we have because we worked for it. You don't, I hope you realize that you do not have what you have because you worked for it. You may have what you have because you worked with it, but not for it. Uh, Tim Keller uses an illustration. Let's say you were born on a mountaintop in Tibet in the 12th century. You probably wouldn't have your MBA, your JDD, your MD. You probably would not have your 401k or your pension or your sports scholarship or all your education or all your comfort, all, all your, your, your comfortable heritage. You, probably, you might be a good potato farmer, maybe a good sheep herder. Max, that's what you would be. Much of what we have, it's gifts that have been given to us. And if you've used it well, that's wonderful. When you recognize, by God's grace, the gifts I have, the mercy I have, he's, he's given to me, we're, we're, we're meek, we're recognizing it's not, not pride, it's not me. That meekness carries over into our relationships with other people. And, you know, you look at this and you go, James, I bet he's talking. In the last chapter, there's these people who wanted to be teachers. I think maybe he's still leaning that. 
wise and understanding, you people who want to be the teachers, you people who think you got it all figured out and you think you understand it. By golly, if someone would just listen to me and I've got my finger on the pulse of everything, you know, and I, I've got it all taken care of. And if these other bozos, I don't know how they got to lead, but if they would just listen to me, we would get to where we need to be. And James is saying, you think you're wise, you think you got it figured out. I don't think so. Prove it by your meekness born out of your relationship with God, out of your wisdom. Prove it. Don't tell me. Show me. That's where he's going. C.S. Lewis is a book, uh, Mere Christianity. Just just finish that again. If there's an inspired piece of literature, this is probably one of other than the Bible, this might be it. Lewis is talking about this idea of uh, pride and humility, meekness. And we think sometimes, well, pride is, you know, it's what other people, I don't have this issue, of course. Oh, you know, I've got a little bit, but other people, you know, a whole lot. And, you know, uh, that's something that people from the other side of the tracks or people who haven't been educated like I have or, or people, but not me. You know, see, I'm, I'm sanctified beyond that part. Lewis says this. He says, if anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. And a biggish step too. At least nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means that you are very conceited indeed. This whole meekness born out of wisdom relationship with God is huge. Now, James says not everyone's going to work that way. Verse 14, he says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts... Do not be uh, boast and be false to the truth. In other, in other words, uh, uh, this uh, bitter uh, jealousy, the, the word is um, to be a zealot, zealousness, you know, a zealot, somebody who's going to give everything they have for the cause. You know, they're going to put down their life for the cause. In some ways, it's good to be a zealot. But here, the cause is self. You know, so I'm going to live for myself and fight for my rights. And other people, stuff can happen for them, that's okay. But for me, I'm telling you what, man, I am not going to be put down. I'm going to be, if I come up with the idea, I'm getting credit for it. And I'm going to make sure that I'm putting myself out there. And it's, it's fighting for yourself, is the word. The second word is uh, that selfish ambition. It's taking all of your creativity and all of your resources, your time and money and talents, and taking everything that you have and using it for you. You know, just using it to advance you. For your security, for who you are, for what you're about. This doesn't sound too bad, right? James says, if that's what's going on in your heart, then please don't boast about how wise you are because you don't have it, is what he's saying. You're lying. It's, it's not there. Because wisdom will always come with, with meekness, with that, that humility, always. He, he tells a little bit about where that type of wisdom, this, this, this wisdom, this selfish ambition, this, this bitter envy comes from. He says, for where, uh, he says, hang on, this is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. That's important. Important. This uh, earthly, that's of the world's system. Uh, here's the question, philosophical question. Does a fish know he's wet? Right? And, and no, probably not, because he just lives in that culture. That's, that's what he lives in. We live in this culture. We are affected by this culture. Please, we can't ever think that we aren't. 
we are much more affected than we know. We speak English. Did we choose this language? Probably not. We were born here. We dress a certain way. We entertain ourselves a certain way. There, there are customs and cultures. That we, this is who. We, this is our environment. And James is saying, this kind of mindset, me first. I'm going to protect myself, my ambition. He says, that, you're picking that up from this world that you're living in. Second word, he says, it's also it's unspiritual. Really interesting word. When God created, remember all the animals? And then he creates man. Remember, after he created man, he goes to man and he breathes his spirit into man. The word refers to he created man and the mankind just before he breathes his spirit into him. So man as an animal. Man outside of understanding of who God is. Man's default system. He says, the kind of wisdom that says, I'm going to get ahead. That's your own logic. It's what the rest of the world is doing and saying. And it's what in your heart, if you listen to your heart, it's where it's going to take you. Next word he gives is kind of scary, though. He says, and it's demonic. Remember, it was that last week I mentioned that if we're a little bit loose with our tongue, I think that that, that that's demonic. I wasn't just being angry and stuff. I think that, that he's on to, to something here. Now, now, follow me for a second. Early, early church, folk were taking offerings, you know, taking big old offerings. Uh, a couple, a guy by the name of Ananias and Sapphira, they saw everyone else giving their, all their stuff, and they thought, oh, we should probably give too. Uh, let's do this. So they went and they sold a field. I don't know what they sold it for. Let's just say 500 bucks. And they came and they gave 300 bucks into the offering plate, but they told everybody, this is all the money we have. This is all the money we got for that field. We're giving it all. We're giving it all. Meanwhile, they got these hundred bucks, a couple hundred bucks in their pockets. And so Peter says this, Acts 5.3. Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Why has Satan Filled your heart. Paul, look at 2 Corinthians 2. He says, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been forgiven for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we're not ignorant of his designs, of his schemes. You got, in Matthew... There's Peter, Jesus just says he's going to die, just foretelling his crucifixion. And Peter steps in and says, whoa, Lord, not you, not you. Jesus looks at Simon Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Apostle Paul's writing to the church in, in Ephesus. He says this, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. You can go on and on through scripture. First Peter 5, 8, Peter's talking to believers and he says, you've got an adversary. He's the devil and he's roaming about like a roaring lion seeking someone to tear apart. Uh, you, fascinating verse in Luke uh, 22. Jesus, again, is talking to Simon Peter. This is the night Jesus was going to be, uh, you know, uh, uh, he was going to be caught. He was going to be tried. And it's going to be tough on Peter, right? But he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. You know, fascinating thing about all these guys, all these texts, and we can go through more texts. These are not coven attending, occult, part practicing, uh, seance type people. 
These are not folk who are sporting pentagrams and wearing the black robes and they're killing their cat in the backyard. These, these are, these are Christian people doing Christian things. All of these are Christian. This is the church we're talking about for crying out loud. And if you were to ask these folk, you know, Satan involved in your life, you know, what would you think you would get? <laughs> of course not. What are you serious? Please. You've been watching too many movies. Friday the 13th. Come on. Listen. Well, you just, there's no Satan involved here. I'm guessing none of these people thought that Satan was involved in their life in any way, shape, or form. Again, we're not talking about demon possession here. Uh, you don't need special holy waters and rosaries and exorcism to take care of this. James is going to tell us in the next chapter, you want to get rid of Satan, you resist the devil and he will flee. It's an issue of obedience. But, but here's, here's for us. If it's possible that... Satan's involved with church people. Is it possible that he is involved in your life much more than you think? Is it possible that he has some sort of a stronghold? I'm not saying you're possessed. I'm not saying he's going to take you to hell when you die. But is it possible? I, I think so. And it's an issue where we stop and say, which is what James is referring to, that this earthly wisdom that's me first has put myself in front of everybody else, yada, yada. That's demonic, James will say. And he goes on and he lets us know the fruit of that. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. First uh, uh, Samuel uh, 17, you've got uh, David. He's a sweet little boy, actually, at this point, maybe junior high. Chapter before, he would go to King Saul. King Saul had this anxiety issue. In Scripture, it was, it was a demon. Uh, and David would play for him on his harp, because David was such a great musician. I would like to think that David probably sang some of his psalms that we have in our Scripture to King Saul. And it did what they do to us. Often it brought comfort. Um, Chapter 17, you know, the story Israel and the, uh, the armies of Israel and the Philistines are squaring off. And, and the Philistines send forth their champion, right? Goliath, you know, like Veggie Tales, who will fight me, right? And, and, and so Israel, they all look to their king. Saul, come on, it's your time, buddy. Your number's up. Let's go. And King Saul is going, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go pray about it. Let's, we want to make sure that we do this right. And so he won't go out. Well, King, he's not King David yet. He's a little boy, David. He sees what's going on. And he says, someone's got to go fight this guy. I'll do it. And so Saul, no options. No one else has taken him up. Says, oh, where do we got to lose? Okay, go. And you, you know the story. David kills Goliath. But then what happens is all of Israel's armies, when they see this, they all get emboldened and go, ah, yeah, and they charge the Philistines. And the Philistine army, when they see, see Goliath is dead, they go, ah, and they run. And so the, 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 the huge victory for Israel. Well, later on that day, they're all parading, all the warriors are parading back into town, and, and, and David is in the midst, is toward, and, and, and word has spread, little, King, little David, not King David yet, little David has got this victory for them. And the people know, the regular people, Joe-type people, they know that if the Philistines come to town, they come to rape, pillage, and burn. Not a good thing. David just saved them. And so they're ecstatic about this. So in 1 Samuel 18, it says, The woman sang. They're all coming into town. As they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Yeah, you can imagine what King Saul is thinking of this. 
He's walking in there with the rest of the soldiers, and he's feeling good. And then he hears these gals come out and sing the song. He's thinking, <laughs> yeah, well, you know, David did a good thing. It's a beginner's luck. And I'll remember way back when, when I took on Nahash the Ammonite. And it was, oh, we killed, clobbered those guys. Yeah, yeah, and that was probably not 10,000. So just, you know, David just got, well, we don't have to wonder what, what we think Saul was thinking. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David 10,000s. And to me, they have ascribed thousands. You can see his bottom lip out when he says this. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Now next, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. Problem Now, what Saul was doing is he put David in charge of armies and sent him into the worst possible battles, assuming that David would be killed. But David, for crying out loud, came back with victory every time. Uh, next slide. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David. And he went out and came in before them. So you can imagine, Saul has got this selfish ambition, this bitter jealousy thing going on in his heart. And what is the fruit of this? Well, he he gets paranoid. He lies about David, slanders David, gossips about David. The people begin, some of the people begin to believe it. Uh, David has to run for his life. Saul's son, Jonathan, there's a big riff in the family now. Jonathan has to lie a little bit to try to protect David. Uh, Michael, David's wife, has to lie a little bit to try to protect David. David's got to enter into a little bit of deception himself. At one point, he's running from, from Saul, and he stops off at the, he doesn't have anything, he's just running, he just got loose, and he run, stops off at the, the tabernacle where Goliath's sword is kept. And he says, hey, can I get that sword? And they say, well, how come you don't have any weapons? He says, I'm on a special mission for the king, and it was such an important mission, I just had to leave in a hurry, so I don't, I don't have my sword. Well, oh, yeah, here you go. And so uh, David said, can we have some bread, too? And they said, well, if you're on a special mission for the king, yeah, sure, you can have some bread. So they all leave. Well, word gets back to Saul. So he calls the priest in, calls 80 of the priests in, all the priests. They're all in his office, right? And he says, what is going on? And they say, we didn't know that you don't like David anymore. Well, Saul murders all of the priests. That's not good enough for Saul, though. Then he goes to their hometown, and he murders their, 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 their kids and their wives. And then, then Saul musters the army. You can imagine how much money and time is spent chasing David across the, the desert, on and on and on. When they could have used those resources to, to, to build up the borders of Israel. They could have used those resources to feed the people. But no, that wasn't happening. In time, there would be a split. There would be a, a civil war. And brother would be fighting brother. And thousands of Israelis are fighting each other, killing each other, all because Saul is in his heart. He's got selfish ambition. He's got bitter envy. And James is saying, in in a church where people operate with a worldly sort of wisdom, where they're selfish and and bitter, me, number one, there's every evil thing going on. There's gossip, there's murder in the mind, there's hate, there's conniving type stuff. It's it's, it's, it's 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 just a civil war. Don't think that you have any, any bearing on the kingdom of hell that you're reflecting God properly because, because you're just not. Then he, he's going to contrast that, though. Verse 17. But the wisdom that is from above. It's 
Heavenly wisdom. We, you, if you know him, you, you've got access to this. You've already clicked in. It's first, pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You know, he's, when he describes it, James' vocabulary is fascinating. The terms he uses here. It's pure. It's, it's without any defilement, right? It is peaceable. That means it doesn't alienate anybody. These are all relationship, meek-type words. It doesn't alienate, alienate anybody. It seeks to incorporate people in. What if I told you? What if I told you that there are people who come to church here who don't feel like they're accepted, they're like they're, they're part of the body. Now, if you've been coming a long time, I, you, that would grieve you, that would hurt you. But you need to know that it's true. And so let me throw this out, if you've got this kind of meekness, right? What are you going to do about it? What, what are you going to do? He, go, he, goes, he goes on. He says that, that this, this wisdom is gentle, different word that's used earlier. It's a hard word to, to uh, translate, but the word means not fighting for your rights. It's uh, back to the David and Saul thing. If you remember this, David is playing his harp while Saul's having one of his tax episodes. And Saul starts thinking, he doesn't like David at this point. He takes his spear, and he's going to pin David to the wall. So he chucks the spear at him. Well, David ducks, and the thing's stuck in the wall. What do you do if someone throws spears at you? You throw them back, right? I mean, you pull the thing out of the wall, you're just defending yourself. And you just, no, David's pretty good aim, right? So if he, we remember Goliath, if, if he threw that spear back, he probably would be the king at this point on. And if he threw that spear back, and in scripture it said that, we would all say, well, it makes sense. It's just the right thing to do, man. You gotta defend yourself. Uh, he would be a king, though, after the manner of Saul. He would cease being a David. Because the kind of wisdom that the, James is talking about is a wisdom that doesn't fight for my rights, even if they're justified, even if it's appropriate. In one level, one could say it's appropriate to do so, but in this specific situation, no, you know what? I, 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 I died to that. It'd be wrong for me to do that. They're open to reason, full of mercy and, and good fruits. So it's a reasonable person, not a stubborn person. A full of mercy and good fruits. I, I care for people, and then I do something about it. Impartial and sincere. And here's the harvest here. Here's what happens. Here's the fruit of that kind of wisdom. A harvest of righteousness. Now remember where the, the earthly wisdom is, you have discord and every evil thing. But here, heavenly wisdom, you have a harvest of righteousness sown in peace by those who make peace. Harvest of righteousness. Can you imagine a church, that's what he's saying, where people are operating out of a heavenly wisdom. Harvest of righteousness. Key one being peace. Uh, when we think of peace, we think of war and peace, right? You know, peace is a absence of war. That's not really what, it's the word shalom. Uh, in Hebrew, they have a, a, a greeting, normal greeting. It's shalom alakam, which is, which is peace be upon you. And they're saying on one level, may you not have any battles today. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But it goes much deeper than that. 
It means may God's blessing rest on you today. That means as you go through this day, may God look at you and smile. May God feel so good about you today that he cannot help but, but heap good stuff on you. As you go through this day, may, may God's blessing affect your health. And may, this, this word incorporates all of life. It even incorporates death. You know, it says that Abraham would go to his fathers, talks about his death, in peace, in shalom. Think that what this community of Shalom is, is this is like the Garden of Eden before the fall. And James is saying that if, in fact, we, we live out of, we, we do our works out of, our words, no, no second motives, we do this out of a meekness by wisdom from, from God, fruit of righteousness. Man, I'd love to go. Wouldn't you love to be a part of a church like that? That's part of the church. Now, there's going to be no perfect church this side of heaven. I got it, but I wonder how close we can get. That's, that's what James is, is, is saying. A church where there's spiritual maturity. This is what you, you see. Fourth century, there was a, a monk by the name of Telemachus. Lived outside Rome. A simple man, simple, very simple life. That's all he knew. Farm outside of Rome. But uh, this is historical. Uh, the historians aren't sure why he ventured into Rome that day. But for whatever reason, he did. He is in, into Rome. Now, Rome at this point is a Christian city. You know, the Roman Catholic Church is just, it just started. Rome is a Christian city. And so he goes into Rome. Well, he, he's caught up in this crowd, huge crowd, and they're going to the Colosseum. He's, he'd never been to the Colosseum before. What is this all about? But, you know, the churches are all left out. Everybody's claiming to be Christians. They all go to the Colosseum. 80,000 people in this Colosseum. And he looks down, and all these people are there. This is great. What's going to happen? I don't know. And the gladiators start coming out, fighting each other to the death. And, and he's first not sure what in the world is going on. And he sees them dying. And then he sees these people who claim to be Christians cheering. And, and, and so according to the history books, he jumps out of, his, out of his seat. He jumps into the arena and he puts himself between two of the gladiators. And he said, in the name of Christ, forbear. And they're not sure what to do. They knock him down and they keep fighting. He jumps up again and gets right back there and says, please, in the name of Christ, forbear. And he did this two or three times. And then uh, we got a couple of different reports. One is that one of the gladiators just ran him through with this sword, killed him. Another report is that some of the Christian folk in the stands jumped into the arena as well, pulled him aside and stoned him to death for messing up their entertainment. But either way, Telemachus dies in the arena. The historians all agree on that. And as the people watch him die... It's kind of like a hush comes upon the the uh, arena. And the people left that day. It's kind of a cloud hanging over. Uh, three days later, the emperor, who claims Christianity, proclaims Telemachus as a martyr of the faith and s- proclaims from this point on, gladiatorial warfare is over. The gladiatorial games were done. There was never another gladiatorial fight in Rome since then. Because the one simple guy who, who exercised uh, meekness through his relationship with God. Uh, harvest of righteousness. He didn't get to see it, but harvest of righteousness. Good things.